That's such a deep and wonderful hymn, and one of the most wonderful things is the author's name is Augustus Toplady, or Toplady. For all of you pregnant women, if you name your next child Augustus Toplady Hammond, <laughs> whatever the last name is, we'll give you a free parking place next to the church for a year. I might need to check the session on that first, but uh, please turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15, uh, 1, 15 through 2, 4 uh, this morning. And as I was going through this passage, and Paul, of course, is defending his integrity, and it's amazing how sometimes the people with the most integrity have to defend their integrity, but we live in an age of scandal, don't we? And it's hard sometimes to to prove your honesty in many ways. And I was reminded of a, a situation happening in my life some years ago. We had been emphasizing to the children that a, a godly man, a godly woman, keeps their word even to their own hurt. And if you've made a commitment to do something, uh, and if it hurts you to make that commitment and to keep your word uh, and to be known as an honest person, then it's worthwhile. Whatever hurts that you have to go through is worthwhile. And it's interesting, you know, as often is the case, as we're really emphasizing that with our children, I get this phone call out of the blue, and it's uh, the phone, the lady on the other end of the phone was uh, something like the American Israeli Foundation, and that uh, Congressman Jeff Duncan had nominated me for a free trip with a bunch of pastors, a round-trip trip, to go to Israel. And it would be a 10-day, one-week, 10-day trip to go to Israel, and we would have an opportunity to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. And, of course, I'm all in. And I'm thinking, uh, we have so many elders, they can handle the sermon. I don't care what it takes. We're going to go to this thing. And, uh, and then I, I, she gave me the date. And the date was the problem. It was pretty much the only weekend that entire spring, but I had committed to perform a wedding for a young couple. And my mind immediately started thinking, well, you know, she could get anybody to do the wedding. And I thought, no, no, I just cannot see me saying to that young couple, sorry, I'm not going to do your wedding. I get to go to Israel. So I told them, no, we're not going to be able to do that. And uh, so, and it helped me <laughs> be able to emphasize the point with the children, right? Well, the way God is too, God is so good. After uh, several years, we got an invitation actually to go to Israel and actually spend some time with church folks as opposed to Netanyahu, who's a politician, he's probably stuffy anyway. And, uh, and, and it was a longer trip and even a better trip, you know. So it doesn't always turn out that way. But there is a principle there, I think, that, uh, that in, I would have loved that trip to Israel, but I would love having a clean conscience even more. And that's the principle I think that we're going to see here this morning as we look at this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is defending his integrity and this change of his plans. But within this historical account, some of these accounts in the epistles, especially in this one, 2 Corinthians, they look like little teeny books of Acts, kind of describing some of the actions of the apostles there in Europe and that sort of thing. But within this account, there's just nuggets of truth nuggets of, of powerful, powerful truth from our Lord and Savior that will help us to be able to uh, not just only be people of integrity, but people of joy and of faith as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's un unpack this 
wonderful passage of Scripture the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we thank you, God, for the reminders of the importance of integrity, dealing honestly with people, of being able to walk through life without shame, without guilt, without having to check behind us. A dishonest person trusts no one. But a man of integrity, a woman of integrity, are people uh, of, of discernment and of wisdom. And they can walk in confidence before people. And when they give their word, people know they will keep it. Those are the kind of people we want to be, Lord. So help us to go to school on the Apostle Paul, on this man of integrity, this Christian among Christians, as he has to defend himself against wicked people. And help us to be able to do the same that he has done if that situation arises in our, in our heart, in our place. In Christ's name, amen. Again, please turn to 2 Corinthians as we're journeying through that book. We've just really got, have gotten started in so many ways here. And Paul, again, at one of the challenges of an epistle is uh, we don't always know what was happening and what caused the events, but we can pretty much piece it together uh, based on, uh, on, on the responses that Paul gives in these epistles. Of the four Corinthian letters, we have two. Uh, so there were some missing letters that we don't have, but we have First and Second Corinthians, and we can actually uh, get a pretty good understanding about what was going on in the condition of the church uh, at the time. But as we look at this passage today, we're going to see uh, Paul's changing plans in verses 15 through 17, Paul walking in integrity in verses 18 through 21, and Paul being motivated by love in verses uh, 1, 23 through 2, 4. You do have a home group help. Uh, uh, outline there there with some questions that might serve you well as a daily devotion or also in some of our weekly home groups uh, as we go through this. So let's look, first of all, at the changing plans of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, verses uh, 15 and through 17 of chapter 1. God says, Paul writes, And in this confidence I intended at first to come to you that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes and no, no at the same time? So again, Paul is dealing primarily with false teachers, and it's amazing how a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, isn't it? So you had basically the Corinthian church there. They live in the most immoral city probably in the entire Roman world. Uh, and yet, you added, even in the, the midst of that city, which is like at the gateway of hell in some ways, in terms of the behavior of the people, the reputation of the people, God chose people. God saved quite a number of Corinthians, even from God's own word, there are many people in the city of Corinth that will worship him. So Paul ministered there for a year and a half. Can you imagine going to a church where the apostle Paul planted and preached for a year and a half? So the foundation was laid, and there's some, a number of godly people. But as the devil is prone to do, he snuck in wolves among the sheep. And the wolves wanted power. They wanted, uh, they wanted influence. They wanted money, and they wanted to be able to teach false doctrines. Well, the Apostle Paul was in their way. 
So as Paul exited, and as he goes on to Ephesus, a minister there and everything, the, the false teachers got to where they were attacking the apostle Paul. And one of the things they seized upon was he had made a comment. He had promised that he would go back and visit the Corinthians again, and he had not done that in the way that he had described. So it's kind of interesting with the apostles. It's about the only thing they could find to get him on, right? <laughs> because he was such a man of integrity. And people, they were with him probably almost every day for a year and a half. They knew him to be a man of integrity. But they were exploiting this. And you can almost see the situation. Uh, they go up and they, they give some false teaching. that Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't man. Something like that. And then some good officer of the church comes up and says, now, wait a minute, the Apostle Paul says this. And they'll say, oh, that same Apostle Paul who promised to come visit. And, well, where is he? Oh, that Apostle Paul. That Apostle Paul that keeps talking about this collection. wonder what he's doing with that money. And they're just putting in those seeds of doubt. And it's affecting the whole, the whole church here. It's kind of like those old, growing up, we used to watch cowboy movies all the time, and there was always this, uh, this scene where uh, the Native Americans were being betrayed, and, and they would say, he speak with forked tongue. You know, they're, 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 that's what the false teachers are saying here. Paul speaks with uh, forked tongue. He's always changing his plans here. But what Paul had to do, and we're going to find out why he changed his plans in this passage here, but what he did is that the Corinthians had not repented. And they had, not, they had not changed the way he said that they should, should change. So he ends up writing them a, a very difficult, a very harsh, perhaps, letter to get them to repent. And what he's doing, he's waiting to find out what the response was be. He's waiting for Titus to come and give a report about what's going on in Corinth. Did they repent or not? And he didn't want to visit prematurely, as we'll find out here. But notice what he says here. He says he has this confidence. This is similar to, as we learned last week, uh, with the, the same kind of word with pride and boasting. But he is, he is prideful in a sense, uh, in, in the best way, boasting in a sense. He is confident in a sense uh, that these Corinthians will do the right thing. Uh, that, that, that what they planted is going to come to fruition here. You know, this is amazing. Paul is so positive. Uh, these folks have really stabbed him in the back. They've been his problem child. They've been his difficult thing. And, and there's no sense of bitterness here with the Apostle Paul. You know, for those of us who have some years on him, it is real easy to fall into bitterness, isn't it? We have all been hurt. We have all been betrayed. Sometimes the people closest to us. And, is, and I think it's probably even easier to become bitter in ministry because we have certain expectations among people. And I would submit to you, there is just no profit in bitterness. Not only is it a sin, it defiles many, as Scripture says. So maybe the, the older of us ought to get together and just, make, and just keep each other accountable not to get into this bitterness that so often happens where you become grumpy old men, grumpy old women, and embittered with some of the pain that's happening. If Paul had a reason to be bitter and just to write somebody off, he had the reason of the Corinthian church. And he is weeping because of his love for them. He doesn't use the excuse to bail out, which maybe some of us would have used here. He, just, he says here he intended to come at the first. You know, he, his heart's desire is always to be with them. He is not avoiding them. Uh, he, is, he is using wisdom in terms of his plans. And he kind of refers back to here when he talks about passing your way into Macedonia and again to Macedonia to come. Uh, it goes back to what he wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter 
and you will send me on my way that I may go. For I do not wish to see you just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he mentions this here, and then he mentions here in this passage that he wants to do this, he wants to receive a twice blessing here. Uh, English Standard Version talks about, uh, says that it's a second experience of grace. What is that? Well, he's talking about maybe coming and going and staying as he goes to ver- the, through the peninsula of Greece, staying in Corinth. So it may be him being there twice. He mentions that to the Romans, for I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And that is maybe encouraged together with you a while, each one of us with the other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, he's th- thinking the blessing is going to be the presence with him. He's going to bless them. They're going to bless him. But some commentators also think that he might be talking about this collection. You had a, you had a, a, a famine going on in Judea right now. And in a sense, Christians sort of owe a lot of their heritage, a lot of the things that we have came to us from the Jews. And the church in Judea was struggling. And it was Paul's desire in order to be able to heal the wound and the differences between Jew and Gentile for the, for the, for the, the Greek and the Asian churches to bring a collection together to help and to give that charity to the Jewish churches. It's a brilliant idea. So the blessing may actually be a financial blessing. As we see here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do uh, you, uh, you also on the first day of the week. So th- he's talking about Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. On the first day of the week, uh, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper and no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That's kind of beautiful, isn't it? That the giving, uh, the giving of, to somebody else to help another need, to giving to the church is considered a blessing. It's considered a grace in Holy Scripture. And those of you who are accustomed to giving know that to be true. Uh, and, and it's still hard, right? That's money you could have spent for something else. But, yet, but the, the peace that comes... Uh, the peace that comes to supporting the ministry and helping others uh, in the ministry is indeed a blessing. He says he was not vacillating here, uh, and, he, and he asked these two questions. I was not vacillating when I tended to come to you. Uh, was I? And, of course, these two questions can only be answered in the negative uh, with an, a course not. Or that which I purpose, do I uh, purpose according to the flesh? You know, so, in other words, it, it, did he just have a bad day? <laughs> Uh, did he make a plan to go to the Corinthians, but he got a better invitation at a better party at Ephesus? They're, they're, just, they're accusing him of being duplicitous, of not caring, of not loving, and just sort of writing them off. And Paul is just reminding him, I'm Paul. When was I dishonest with you when I was with you? Why would I just make my change? There's a reason for everything, and, and the reason is God has preferred it this other way. Kistermaker says this, he implies that not everything in life is in our own hands, for sometimes God uses circumstances that necessitate a change of plans. Haven't you known that to be true? God, God is providential. We do best we can. We go before the Lord in prayer in terms of making our plans, but God is providential. And some things, things just don't, don't happen the way you'd hope to. If you haven't had COVID yet, if you get COVID, you will have to change some plans, <laughs> Right? And it's not because you don't love the people that you had made plans with. It's just that in Providence, things have changed with your health, for instance, here. 
And he says that with me should things be yes and no at the same time. And of course, again, the answer is, of course not. Now, he's mentioned this yes and no thing here because he knows they know he taught them the principle that Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 37. Let your statement be yes, yes or no, no, and anything beyond these is of an evil. Folks, integrity, letting your yes be yes and your no be no ought to be a hallmark of Christianity. Ought to be a hallmark of Christian virtue. It ought to be like a banner over your household, even to the point where it may hurt you. It's hurting Paul right now. But, he's, but, but one of the things you do is you build a reputation for honesty, but you can destroy that reputation in an instant with dishonesty, can you not? Christians should be people of integrity. You know, this is one of the, it's kind of a side issue, but. I wasn't reformed a lot of my Christian life. I guess, well, I don't know when I became, 25 years ago maybe, I became reformed. You know, one of the, th- the things I love about the doctrines of grace, of trusting God to be the one to save people and, and, and knowing that sanctification is an act of grace, and I love the fact that I am freed up from the temptation to manipulate people, Amen. to try to trick you into making a profession of faith or trying to, try to, to goad you into something. It's just, it's just simply not the way we are. We basically, we read truth, we present truth. It's not that we are, don't care about emotions or anything like that, but we don't have to try to manipulate people. You know, one of the tragedies of the Second Great Awakening is it got kind of, uh, it got kind of hijacked by uh, people like uh, Charles Finney. Charles Finney up in the New York area, they later called that the burned over district because... People had just had about enough of Christianity because of all the manipulation that was going on. But one of the things Finney is famous for saying is that he can get a conversion without any movement of the Holy Spirit, any work of the Holy Spirit. And it's it's no surprise that many of the revivalists in our country were former salesmen. They had just learned, they had gotten really good about talking people into things. Now, it shouldn't be that, you know, you can't, a question shouldn't be poised to you poised to you, posed to you, or that you should be encouraged to do something, but we don't have to trick anybody to the cross. And the Apostle Paul knows that. And he didn't try to manipulate anybody for the year and a half that he lived there. He's not trying to manipulate anybody now. One commentator says this, because Christ is the grand consuming yes, God's unambiguous ultimate yes, he is the ground and fulcrum of all Christian ethics. Those who are in Christ and embrace him as the yes with all their hearts will embrace truth and truth-telling as a way of life. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes with verses 18 through 21 as he's walking in integrity. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you for, by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. And here's one of those wonderful nuggets, those, the diamond of the first order within this text. For as many as the promises of God in him, they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge here. So you see here, but God is faithful. The Christian integrity is founded upon the integrity of God himself. And as, as Paul, you can almost see Paul holding up his, his hand right here. He's making something. This is sort of a statement of a vow. As God is faithful, 
There's something of an oath formula involved here uh, where, where Paul is calling upon God to, to validate his faithfulness as God himself is, is, is faithful. That's the thing about being a Christian. What is being a Christian? One who belongs to Christ. You are a Christ, Christian, right? So you should have the integrity that Christ had. As many times as, as, as Christ's opponents try to back him into the corner, he never compromised. He never compromised. And he says here, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you. He's just reminding him, listen, Timothy, Silas, Silvanus, and myself, we preached, we brought this. Why would people who bring you truth now lie to you? This is the whole point, right? This is our latest T-shirt, right? The Church of Jesus Christ, the pillar and support of truth. That's, you've got Anderson University, Erskine students walking all around campus with that on the back of their T-shirt with our church seal on the front of it. If you're, if you're going to lie, don't be wearing our T-shirt when you do it, please. And, of course, he mentions Titus and Timothy because they were help, helped him found the church. But also, he's probably going back to the Old Testament uh, idea that you need three witnesses to validate a testimony here. Uh, T- Timothy's with me. Silas is with me. We're all in agreement. This is something that we, we've committed ourselves to. We are not lying here. And uh, he talks about the yes and no here, which is really the, the author of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. Yes, and forever. Aren't you glad God doesn't lie? I mean, when you get discouraged and you wonder about life and you wonder about heaven, and you're, aren't you glad that he, it really is impossible for him to lie? That he would not tell you you're going to heaven if you're not going to heaven? That's, man, we, our whole life is based on that principle, is it not? Well, it ought to be the same with us as well. For many is the promises of God in him, they are yes. If you think, what are the promises of God? Go back to the Old Testament. What did God promise his people? Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He promised forgiveness. He promised that a redeemer would come. He promised eternal salvation. He promises to go with you. He promises that he will cause all things to work together for good. All of those promises, every single promise you can come up with, has its culmination in the yes of Jesus Christ, the amen of Jesus Christ. You can trust Jesus Christ. He is the great promise keeper. And because of that, we can go for, as we'll see in a little while, in, in joy here. He's reminding the, the Corinthians later on here uh, 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 as, he, as he continues on with the role of the Trinity here. Now, he who established you is... You in Christ and anointing us in God who also uh, sealed us and gave us his spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You'll hear cultists say, the Trinity is never taught in the Bible. The Trinity is never taught. Now, I've had cultists tell me that. Trinity is never taught in the Bible. The word Trinity is not used. But folks, the Trinity is taught right here amongst a lot of other places. This principle of one God and three persons is right here. And you might want to do what I do. If you don't mind marking in your body, marking in your body. I did not mean to endorse tattoos. Uh, but I don't mean to, for those of you who have tattoos, anyway. <laughs> I need Malcolm right there to keep me from getting uh, sidetracked. <sighs> Where was I? Trinity. Mark in your Bible a little triangle. A little triangle. Here's one of the great teachings 
of the Trinity. Notice what he says here. You got all the, you got Christ, you got God, you got the Spirit here. You, you're established and confirmed in Christ. That's present tense. So it's an action that happened. That w- w- there's an ongoing experience there, and that ongoing experience are all related to the the Spirit. What did the Spirit do? He anointed us in Christ. What does anointed mean? Well, that's 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 the where we get our word Christ. That's where the Jews get their word uh, Messiah. So the, the so the anointed one anoints us in Him. The Christ makes Christians, fills us with the Holy Spirit, sealed us, which of course denotes ownership and authenticity. Uh, we, it confirms that we belong to him and it shields us from harm. This is one of the beautiful pictures uh, when, we, when we have an infant baptism. And you'll see this when we baptize Augustus Tupletty Hammond uh, here uh, sometime in the spring. <laughs> but uh, they're not here today anyway. That's, if you're watching them. Apologize. Uh, the baptism, the mark of baptism, is a sign and a seal. Literally, we will place, in a sense, God's name upon this covenant child. Now, that's not saving the child. The child still got to get saved. The Holy Spirit still needs to work that work. But we're marking them as set aside. They are sacred. They're part of the visible community of God, the Church of the Living. God and God's name is upon them. That's what the Holy Spirit does for all believers. He he seals us with him and then he gives us the spirit. This is the initial installment which guarantees the full inheritance to come. I mean, if any of you bought a house, you put down a down payment, right? If you want to get an apartment, you put down a down payment. If you want to get a puppy, you put down a down payment. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. It's a little taste, the down payment, to sure that the rest of it is coming. Paul expands this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. God's own possession. He owns you he bought you and the price was really really high it cost his son his life you are his so no one can snatch you out of the father's hand now we can't see the holy spirit but those of you who are christians you know he's there don't you he's not an it it's a he he's a person you know he's there If you're even half a paying attention to this sermon, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Actually, probably a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, now we see here he's motivated by love. And this is one of those unfortunate, I can't believe I said the word unfortunate, regrettable uh, chapter breaks because it kind of interrupts the flow of Paul's argument. So we're going to go into verse, uh, 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 into chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. I'm ending with verse 4 here. Uh, but we pick up on uh, 123, where Paul is motivated by love. And he, now he explains to you why it is that he didn't come. But I call on God as my witness. Here's another one of those vows uh, Paul is taking here. I call on God as my witness to my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. But I determined this by my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad 
but the one whom I made sorrowful. And this is the very thing I wrote to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So Paul is calling on God. He has given his testimony. He's now given them the reason after all this, the reason why he uh, did not come. It's because he loves them. And love compelled him to stay. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit here. But Paul just opens his heart. And, you know, Paul is just so unauthentic. One of the other problems about getting a little bit up in age, we tend to guard our heart. We, we don't want to let people know what's really going on. And uh, Paul is transparent here. That's a good virtue in ministry. It really is. When you mess up, fess up, right? That was clever. <laughs> Score one for the Campbell. That's probably already a meme. When you mess up, fess up. I wanted to say it again. <laughs> confess, but press the point when you need to press the point, when you've got God's truth behind you, right? Be an authentic Christian. So many people put on airs. Great illustration uh, that I came across, Billy Graham. Billy Graham uh, made world headlines when he went to England. And uh, England was already in decline uh, back when uh, Graham visited. I think it was in the 70s. And uh, he was filling Wembley Stadium. And John Stott, who was a thoroughgoing evangelical Anglican, uh, was just confused by this. You know, there's a little bit of professional jealousy when you got somebody like a Billy Graham coming in and a lot more people are going to hear him than are filling your, uh, your church on Sunday mornings. And John Stott was said, John Stott kept saying, why should it be that our churches are half empty yet night after night thousands come to hear Billy Graham? And he says this, and the answer I gave myself was this. I believe Billy was the first transparently sincere pastor, preacher, that these people had ever heard. Wow. That's kind of an indictment, isn't it? And Billy, Billy Graham is like that. Was like that, right? Just, just authentic. Good old southern boy. Grew up in ARP, by the way. His mom was an ARP. He became Baptist later on. I'll give you a nod. But... Uh, he was just the real deal, right? And, you know, people loved him, and he was the most admired man. And he came into a situation where Christianity had been institutionalized and politicized for generation after generation after generation. And the churches just had airs about him. And, and the, perhaps the preachers were more concerned about their retirement and their manse than they were about the gospel. And the little teeny compromises that happened over and over and over again here comes good old honest Billy Graham saying, turn to the Lord or go to hell. <laughs> they kind of needed to hear that, right? And he filled the stadium as a result. He was apostle. He was like the apostle Paul. So Paul gives his reason. He did not come to them, not because he was ambivalent, not because he hated them, but because he loved them. And he said he doesn't want to lord it over there and their faith that we're workers with you. Now, I want you to think about that one. Talk about humility. The Apostle Paul is an apostle, capital A, apostle, right? Where did Paul get his commission? Straight from Jesus Christ, right? 
Paul was taken up into the third heaven, right? And what does he say? You Corinthians, you, you problem children, you spoiled brats, you people that keep me up at night, I am a worker with you. I'm one of you. I'm just a blood-bought child of God just like you. And I love you for it. Love me back is what he's saying here. He didn't think he was better than them. He knew he was calling. He was confident he was calling. He, he, this letter really is a defense of Paul's apostleship. But I love that he says, but we are workers with you. And a worker. He's just a worker. That's what it's all about. And the goal here is for your joy here. Everything he, Paul does is for joy. And he, do, and he has this, uh, this conversation here. You don't, uh, I want to bring you joy, not sorrow. And then if, uh, if, if you become sorrowful, then you can't make me joyful because you're sorrowful. And, and he, but he emphasizes this whole principle of joy and rejoicing. And, uh, you know, what, uh, this is the characteristic of a Christian, to have joy. Can I be honest with you? Can I be Billy Graham with you for a minute? I struggle with this a little bit. I think, uh, I think I was just given less dopamine than some people. I just, the, the days of me getting slapped giddy about stuff, it just doesn't seem to come around anymore. Uh, and and I, I kind of feel a little bad sometimes. I'm just not a happier person. But I'm not sure that's what joy means sometimes. Uh, what is joy? I think, at least if it is for me. Just sort of a settled confidence that God's in charge. Amen. Just sort of a, a peace. You know, have, have you ever had this thing? You know, this is like my kind of Friday night. You're sitting there by the fire. Let's assume it's January. You're sitting there by the fire. You got yourself something warm to drink. You got your book. You got your, your, your precious uh, other half beside you. On the floor next to you is a fat little Westie dog. And, uh, and, and the sun's setting, and you got some kind of amazing um, um, uh, Spotify piano soothing music going on. And, and tomorrow is a day off, and you just put your feet up on the ottoman, and you just think, you know, all is well with the world, right? I think that's kind of the joy that we can get, just because our God reigns, and our God loves us. Why am I so stinking uptight all the time? We ought to always be in that kind of mode. But it takes effort, doesn't it? And there are people out there that want to take that from you. So give credit to Paul again, the Corinthians, for some of those people. I mean, literally, these false preachers would wake up. How can we destroy Paul's joy today? And yet, what does Paul do? He just keeps reaffirming his love. He is not going to fall into the bitterness trap. He's a man of integrity. We should be men of integrity. And then he goes on and gives and kind of completes this reason. He didn't want to come lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice here. Later on in this letter, this is where Paul's talking about. Later on in this letter, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, I warn them now while absent, as he's writing, as I did when present on my second visit. So he's reminding the false teachers that, that, he's, that he's rebuked them before, that if I come again, I will not spare them. As much love as Paul had, I think he could have been a fierce force for righteousness as well. You, 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 uh, you want to see how tough a mama can be? You go threaten their children. And Paul, Paul is basically saying, 
I didn't want to come in and start knocking heads until you repented. So we can reduce the number of heads for one thing, right? But, uh, I was watching one of these little videos, and they were, they were interviewing this mom. She said, what's the hardest, most difficult, most unpleasant thing about being a parent? And she said, the children. I don't think any amount of watching right and, and don't say amen, but isn't that true, right? What's the most difficult thing about being a parent? The children. You adore them. And sometimes you're Googling, how can I sell my children to passing gypsies? They drive you crazy. That's the Corinthian church. He loves them. They are driving him crazy. Everything is a mess all the time because of these Corinthians. But in some ways, that kind of makes you love them more. Because you realize, they need me. They need me. These children would be a train wreck without good parenting. They would end up going into Congress. Or <laughs> So... Just as Paul, as you parents can understand, the most difficult aspect of ministry, and you can ask this of any of our officers, anybody, any of you who've been in ministry, is correcting wayward people within the church, within your ministry. That is a painful thing. You spend many hours in, in sermon preparation. You, 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 you have butterflies every time you mount the pul- pulpit, but it's addressing someone's sin, which is the most difficult thing. And here Paul is having to address the sin of many within the Corinthian church but those of you in ministry know this too proverbs 27 6 faithful are the wounds of a friend sometimes a real friend is defined by telling you what you need to hear not what you want to hear right so here's the good news so paul is just he is just it's an interesting thing about second Corinthians. The reason why it seems sort of choppy paul's writing this letter and he's outlining these things to the corinthians And halfway through, he gets a report from Titus. What was their response to the harsh letter that he wrote? So we pick that up in 2 Corinthians. Let me just take you there. I mean, we'll be there in a few months, but let me just read a passage there, 2 Corinthians 7. What actually happens, Paul's confidence was well-placed, in a sense. Picking up with verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. You can hear his joy right here. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when I came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side. Conflict without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he has comforted you as he's reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it, though I, uh, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance." For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. All the pain, like a mother giving birth, all the pain that, child, uh, that Paul experienced ended up giving birth to a repentant church. It worked. It worked. And him not visiting worked. 
and they, they expose the false teachers, and they now want Paul to come, and when he comes this next time, he can come in joy, not knocking heads around. Folks, the, the, the church, this church was birthed out of pain. Every ministry is birthed out of pain. That's just the way planet is, earth is. We're redeemed people, but we got a lot of flesh still in us, right? So let's all go, as we go through this journey of 2 Corinthians, let's go to school on the Apostle Paul. He did it right. He did it right. And the hard things he did were right. And the, the joy that he experienced were right kind of joys. And let us bless the Lord who has not forgotten his church, but uses even fattable folks like us to bring people to repentance. Father, I pray that you would just continue to help us to go to school on the Apostle Paul. Lord, I'm looking forward to meeting him. I don't know how long the line is, but I just can't wait to see this man that we have spent so many hours, so many years studying. A man who literally could have been labeled, would have been labeled in today's news, a terrorist. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the will of God the Father, he became the greatest Christian that ever lived. How much more should we be able to to contribute to the kingdom of God? Lord, we will contribute nothing. Matter of fact, we'll hurt the kingdom of God if we don't walk in integrity. So help us to let our yes be yes and our no be no, and to be honest truth-tellers in a world of lies and light bears in a world of darkness.